Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. We're studying out of Ephesians chapter 4 about growing up spiritually, maturing spiritually. And we've seen in that study that the Bible says that it starts with understanding our identity, getting awareness of who we are. And the first thing that we saw is that we are all part of Christ. You are, you are one with Christ. In order, to be born, in order to be saved, born again, you have to be joined to Christ. And what joins you to Him is the Holy Spirit. He is the point of connection. He is where you're joined to Christ. It's not your body that's joined to Him. Your body belongs to Him. But your connection with God is the Spirit of God. God's Spirit in you connects you to Him. So you've been joined to Christ. We're one with Him. But then we also discovered that makes us one with each other. Because there's only one body. And that's His body. And so not only are we part of Him together, but we're also part of one another. And Paul uses the example of our physical body. It's a great, great example to use because we're all familiar with it because we all have one. And so we continue to follow out that model that he's using. And so we see that the Bible teaches us that there, we're, we're one body. And the, and the challenge we have, especially the, the Western church, the church in the Western Hemisphere, is we tend to be individualists. And especially in the United States, and especially in New England, we are independent individual people. After all, the revolution started here by free-thinking, independent minds and people. And that's fine when it comes to a nation, but it doesn't work so well with God. Because to be independent from God means you're on your own. And the Bible teaches us that none of us is smart enough to be on our own. And if you've been around long enough, you've found that out by experience. I know I have more than once. And so we're part of his body, but that makes us also part of one another. And then we discovered that Paul tells us that each of us has a calling, that God has called every one of us for a purpose. And essentially, he's assigned, just as your body, each part of your body has a a purpose, a calling, so does each part of the body of Christ, each member of the body of Christ has a purpose. And that's one of the most basic things I believe God wants to get across to us. Is every one of you this morning is called by God for something. Every one of us is called by God for something. Then we discovered that God gives us gifts so that we can carry out that calling. And he uses the term grace. Paul uses the term grace. And we see that here in Romans chapter 12 and verse 3. For he says, according to the grace that was given to me... And we've talked about the fact grace just means a gift. A gift is something that you don't pay for or you don't owe something for. It's simply freely given to you. And it applies to our salvation. So in Ephesians chapter 2, when it's talking about the grace that's given to us, it's talking about our salvation. But it talks about anything else that God gives to us. And that includes the gifts or abilities that God gives to us in order to carry out that purpose. So God gives you a purpose and then he equips you with a gift so that you can carry out that purpose. And that's what we've been studying because it's part of growing up is recognizing what the gift is that you've been given. If you've been raised in a family, well, we've all been raised in some kind of family, most of us. But if you've been raised in a family, especially where there are other you have brothers and sisters, and one of the things you discover early on is you're not the center of attention. I went from being an only child to the oldest of four literally overnight because my mother remarried after a divorce, a a, a man who had three children. And it was one of the shocks of my life from being the center of everything Mm -hmm. to suddenly being one of four 
and having to share my mother, having to share food, having to share toys, having to share all kinds of things I didn't have to share the, the day before. It was a rude awakening, but it was good for me. It was good for me. And so what we discover is in the family, God, which, is, which is ordained by God to create an atmosphere in which we can mature and grow up, one of the things that's essential is to learn that we have, we're not just, we don't, the family doesn't exist for us. When you're a little baby, you just, everything is around you. They're so cute. Everybody, you know, gathers around them. It's so wonderful to see a new baby come into church because everybody gathers around them. It's neat because they gather around them, but that child can't do anything that's productive. <laughs> well, produces things, but not productive things. <laughs> And, but, 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 but that's a center of attention. But that whole child's world is itself. All it cares about and knows is whether it's getting fed and getting cleaned up. That's all it cares about. It's all it knows. And if it's not getting what it needs or wants, it will let you know. And that's, the, that's part of what it is to be a baby. But as that baby begins to grow and mature, there comes a point where they realize that they're part of something larger than themselves and that there are actually other individuals around them. And then, hopefully, they begin to realize they're part of a unit called a family that's bigger than, all, than any one of them, and, and each one of them co- contributes part of it. So they begin to have chores assigned to them. And those chores may be little simple things because they're based on their ability. So the, the dad doesn't give that child, you know, when they're three years old, the job of, of, you know, of painting the house because he doesn't have the ability or the skill at that point to do it. So he gives to the child ability, responsibilities that are designed to help make that child realize that they are contributing to the overall benefit and welfare of that family. And that's part of the process of maturing. That's why often children that grow up in the rural areas grow up to be more, often more responsible because they grew up on farms and places where they had to do things because they needed to contribute. And so it developed a sense of responsibility. But with that sense of responsibility comes a sense of importance and a sense of value. And our value to God is not on what we do, but it is nice to know that we can do things that are of value to God. And so we see that same process is true in the body of Christ. So this discussion, this study we're having of growing up is intertwined with the process of understanding that God has a purpose for your life that's valuable and important to Him. And whether we do what we're called to do affects whether He gets done what He wants to get done. That's how important you are to Him. And sometimes we think, well, who am I? I mean, there are millions of people in the body of Christ. Who am I? Well, there are millions of cells in your body. But what if one of them goes awry and does things it shouldn't do? It affects your overall health, doesn't it? If every part of you is not performing its function, it affects your overall health. And that same is true with the body of Christ. So did we give you enough time to find Romans chapter 12? All right. We're going to continue on this morning in our study of growing up, but we're looking specifically at the gifts that God has given to us and equipped us for the service or the calling He's given to us, and it's, it's, it's called the ministry of helps. But we're going to read down again through Romans 12, verse 3 through verse 8. For I say through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, we also talked about the fact this is for everyone. There's nobody left out. There's nobody inferior because it's not based on your ability. It's not based on anything you have or can do. It's based on what God gives you. 
To everyone who is among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but soberly as God has dealt to each one the measure of faith. So we've seen that we are to evaluate ourselves. Our value to God is not based on what we do, but our value to God is based on what you, who you belong to. Just as the value of all parts of your body are not based so much on what they do, their value is based on their yours. But they have a function. Some functions are more valuable than others. But every one of us is valuable to God. That's a very important distinction to, 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 to understand, and we have talked about that before, so we're not going to go back over that today. Verse 4, For as we have many members, talking about our body, in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we, being many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Now as a result of that, verse 6 says, Having therefore then gifts differing according to the grace or the gift that was given to us. So God has given to every one of us gifts, but they differ one from another. And those gifts differ according to your purpose or your function. In the same way, your body is made up of cells. But there are different types of cells Because different cells have different purposes. But they're all cells. So for example, you have a system in your body called the nervous system, which is like your electrical system. It communicates information from one part of your body to the other. So that if you are picking up something on your stove and it is hot, your cells on the outside of your your skin, on your fingers will have nerves in it that will detect that that's hot and communicate. Well, you've all had the experience, I'm sure, where you've hit your finger with something or stubbed your toe, and if you notice there's a moment where your mind, your eyes see that you've hit your toe, but you haven't felt anything yet. If you notice, there's that split second, and that's when it takes for your nervous system to communicate to your brain, you just stubbed your toe. And there's that moment of peace before you know you're going to hit of excruciating pain. And there's that gap in time. That gap is how long it takes for the information to go from your big toe, from the nerves at the end of your big toe, to your brain. Because your brain then has to interpret what that means. So you have cells in your toe that are designed to, 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 to experience something and then communicate that to your brain. You also have, most of us, have hair on our head. That hair is made of cells also. So they're all cells, but they're not all made the same way. And the difference in how they're made is based on the difference in their function. You following me? Because what I want to begin to show you is how to identify your gift. One of the ways to determine where a piece of where a cell came from in somebody's body is how it's made. Because how it's made tells you something about its function. So a hair cell, although it's a cell and has an important function because it provides warmth to the top of your head where the heat tends to to to, to dissipate the most. But hair cells don't feel the way your Your skin cells do and your nerve cells do or else a haircut would be an excruciating 
experience. So they're not made the same way, yet they're all cells of your body. In the same way, we're all part of the body of Christ. But we're not all made the same way because we have different functions. Now, science has discovered that the, that the, that the, the qualities of your hair cells and the qualities of your muscle cells and the qualities of your nerve cells have already been determined when you were conceived in your mother's womb in what's now known as DNA. It's a set of instructions for how each cell is to be formed and that cell is to be formed so it can carry out its purpose. In the same way, when you were born again and God's nature was breathed into you by the Holy Ghost, God's DNA was put in you. And the instructions to develop you and form you so that you would be equipped to perform your function were put in you when you were born again. Just as your cells were given their instructions for how to develop when you were conceived in your mother's womb. You were planned for. Your parents may not have planned for you, but your heavenly parent planned for you. The The Bible says before the foundation of the world, God had planned for you. For this particular moment in time, for this particular place, for an assignment. Yes, sir. And then what we start looking for is when we hear assignment and calling of God, we get this big picture formed in my mind, in our mind. Oh my gosh, I'm supposed to I'm supposed to take nations for God. Maybe. There are parts of your body, there are organs of your body that have big assignments, like your heart and your brain. But there are parts of your body that have assignments that are not so big, but they're just as important. Those are the parts you can't always see and you're not always aware of. But they're functioning. If, they're function- if you're healthy, they're functioning. And so we've been looking at some of these examples of these different gifts and discovering that not all these gifts are big, public, obvious gifts. But they're important gifts because they meet needs. So we looked at some of these gifts. And we began to go down through some of these gifts here, and we're going to look one other place. So in verse 6, he says, Then having gifts differing according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our face. Now we'll notice what he's going to do here. He's going to list a gift, and then he's going to tell you something about how to operate in it. So his real purpose here is how to operate or exercise these gifts. So it's not just having the gift, it's using the gift, and then he's giving us instructions on how we should use the gift. So he's saying if the gift that God's given to you is prophecy, which basically means to speak for God, then you're to do that in proportion to the faith that was given to you. And we've talked about the fact that it takes faith to operate these gifts. Because that's one of the reasons why we shrink back. That's why he said in verse 3, not to think more highly of yourself or to think soberly about yourself. To recognize, soberly just means seriously, to recognize that I am part of Christ's body and he's put a gift in me that he wants me to use. Therefore, I cannot think more highly of myself than I should because it's his gift that he gave me. So I can't take credit for it. It's a gift. Not only is it a gift, it's for his use. It's not for my benefit. It's for his use. 
On the other hand, I can't think more lowly of myself. Who am I that God could use me? Because it's his gift he's put in you. So we're all without excuse because he gave us the gift to use. But we need the exercise faith to use it. Because sometimes you won't know it's in you until you get around. We talked about that before. The gift will not operate until you get next to the need. Because the purpose of the gift is to meet the need. So when you get around the need, you'll experience the gift. Now, you'll find ways to determine. You'll find, you'll find evidence of the gift. But we're waiting sometimes to feel it. One of the challenge problems with the church today is we're a feeling-oriented church. We live and walk by our feelings. We go to church when we feel like it. We read our Bible when we feel like it. We do God's will when we feel like it. I find the word feeling is not in the Bible very often, but the word faith is all over the place. And faith and feelings are the opposite of each other. So we're to operate in these gifts by faith. All right. There's some place I'm trying to get to. <laughs> Verse 7, if ministry, which is the word service, so we've seen the word service, which means a table waiter, then use that, use that gift in our serving each other. He who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhorting. We talked last week that the word exhort basically means to come alongside of. It's the same word that's used of the comforter when Jesus talks about the comforter in John 14, 15, and 16. It's the ministry of the Holy Spirit, but it is, it is natural comfort. It's encouraging. It's coming alongside of and lifting somebody up. He who gives with diligence, we saw that with, or liberality, we see that the word giving means to share something that's yours. And the word liberality doesn't just refer to how much you give, but it refers to the sincerity with which you give. So most of these are talking about the heart with which you operate your gift. Then we went down to leading with diligence. He who shows mercy. We talked about mercy means to, uh, to, uh, mercy means to, to experience in you the emotion that's aroused by somebody else's suffering that they did not deserve. So it's empathy. But notice how we're to do it with cheerfulness. Because you can become empathetic for somebody, you can be feeling what they're going through and end up where they are. And that doesn't help them or you. So it's talking about doing it, but with the idea of bringing them out. So you do it with cheerfulness. The word literally means with bright eyes and a smile. So it's talking about the attitude with which we operate these gifts. All right, go with me now to 1 Peter, chapter 4. But the end of all things is at hand. Well, if Peter thought it was at hand when he wrote it, how much closer to being at hand is it now? But the end of all things is at hand, therefore, our as a result, be serious. Another word for that is sober. Watchful in your prayers. Here again, he's saying, wake up. Realize the time in which you're living. It's time to wake up and realize where we are. And he's speaking that to Faith Christian Center. Above all things, be fervent in your love for one another. For love will cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. 
Now the word to one another is interesting. In Greek, it literally means to yourselves. So what Peter is saying here is be hospitable. Care for one another as if you're caring for yourself because you are, because we're one body. See, Peter had the idea. He, had, he understood that we were one body together. So he's saying when you're hospitable, which literally means to love strangers. He said when you're, when you're caring for one another, hospi- hospitality, we have a hospitality ministry. And it's not just what they do, it's the heart with which it's done. Amen. Hospitality has as its motive to make you feel welcome yes. and important. So when you come to someone's house, see, you can be hospitable no matter how much you have. You can be hospitable if you live in a mansion and you have, you know, you have Irish crystal stemware and, you know, the, the best dishes from overseas. That doesn't determine hospitality. It's the heart of the host or hostess. That's what determines hospitality. It's an attitude of the heart. And he's saying when you exercise that towards one another because when you're exercising that towards one another you're exercising that towards yourself because we belong to one another let's let's go down because there's a place I want to get to verse 10 notice that to be hospitable to one another without grumbling it's again it's attitude attitude is everything with God. What God got so upset with the children in the, in the, of Israel in the wilderness was their attitude. In fact, if you look in Deuteronomy 28, one of the reasons the curse came was because they were not thankful. The reason the Bible talks so much about being thankful is because it keeps us from grumbling and complaining. And grumbling and complaining is the fruit of an attitude of the heart which is basically, I didn't get what I'm entitled to. And I've said this to you many times before, I don't want what I'm entitled to. And you don't want what you're entitled to either. Everything we have from God is by grace. Therefore, how can we complain? How can we complain if everything we have is a free gift and we did not get what we deserved? And so he says, be hospitable without grumbling. The people are, in other words, people are taking things from you. Instead, give. Have the same heart of your father. Yes. Be gracious, be giving, be generous. Now look at verse 10. This is where I wanted to get. As each one has received a gift, as each one of us has received a gift, minister it, to one another, and there again, to yourself. Minister is that same word, diakonos, which means serve. So as each one of us has been given a gift by God, serve one another. Look at this, as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. The word steward is a Greek word, oikonomos. Oikos means house, And nomos means to arrange. 
So it referred to the person that was in charge of overseeing a household. Remember the story of Joseph when he was sold into slavery and he ended up in Potiphar's house as a slave. And Potiphar noticed his, Potiphar was an Egyptian officer. And Potiphar noticed how faithful Joseph was and how diligent Joseph was over somebody else's things. And as a result, he ended up putting him in charge of his old whole household. So Joseph was a steward over Potiphar's things. Now the essence of stewardship is this. What's put, something's been put in your possession that does not belong to you. Something's been put in your possession that's owned by somebody else and they have entrusted it to you to take care of it. So whatever we're stewards over, we automatically know I don't own it. If I don't own it, I don't have authority over it other than to exercise the stewardship that I've been given. And notice he says, to use the gifts that have been given to us to minister to one another as good stewards of what? The manifold grace of God. That word grace again means gift of God. So what he's saying here is God has given gifts to us and they're manifold, many-sided is what that word means. If you look at a, if you look at a, a precious gem, or a diamond. Have you ever seen a diamond when it comes out of the ground is basically a, a rock. I mean, it's just, you know, maybe have four sides to it. it. It looks like a piece of glass. It takes a specialist, somebody who's trained to be able to look at that and realize that's not glass, that's a diamond. But then they put it in the hands of a skilled jeweler, a stone cutter. And he takes that and he begins to cut different parts away And when he's finished, he's taken this block of of rock that you can see through, and now it's a beautiful gem. And what makes it beautiful is when the light comes through one side, because of all the different facets, it's called facets, the different faces that have been cut on it, that light now becomes brilliant and spreads out in many different directions. The word manifold means many-sided. So what Peter's saying here is the grace, the gifts that he's put into his body are many-sided. In other words, there are many different forms. That's why you can't look at somebody else and say, well, I don't necessarily have that gift. You can't, you've got to look at, you've got to assume there's a gift in you. Because he said so. So don't look at yourself and say, well, I can't do anything, so I guess he left me out. Then God lied. Because his word says he put a gift in you. All that means is you haven't discovered what it is yet. And most of the time we haven't discovered it is because we haven't used it. And many times we haven't used it because we haven't recognized that it's a gift. We've been doing things, but we haven't realized that's a gift God's given to us. We don't think it's because it's not spiritual. So there are people that if if you have, you know, if we're, I've watched it time and time again. We may have a function here. And at the end of the function, what, there's some people just stay around and they'll just start cleaning up even though they weren't asked to. Why? Because there's a gift in them of service, of helping. And it's, it's, see, it's part of their instinct. So it's what they do when they see the need. They see a need, they go meet it. 
I remember one time we had a, 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 a type of function going on regularly. And, and we would come and, and as, as leaders and, you know, and, and certain people at the end of it, because there was meal involved, they'd just run and start cleaning up. And I, my wife would come to me and she says, you know, I feel guilty because I just don't, I don't end up doing that. I said, well, what do you do? She said, well, I end up talking to people. And we said, your gift is encouragement. Their gift is, is service. There are different types of service. Their gift is, is a service, a manual service. You're operating in your gift. Most people operate in their gift and don't realize they're doing it because they don't realize it's a gift. Because they're looking for something big and spiritual, like prophesying or teaching. As I told you before, that I was teaching when I was a lawyer, and I didn't know I was teaching. I was just explaining things to my clients. Because you will operate in the gift that's in you by instinct. So one of the ways they discover is, hey, what are you doing? Now, you've got to be doing something. If all you do is sit in a blue chair, then you won't find out what it is. But if you're doing something, what is it you like to do? Other than eat chop fudge Sundays and you know, watch TV. I mean, what is it you like to do for others? Those are the kinds of things to ask yourself in prayer. But notice, it's a, man, it's a many-sided grace or gift that was given to us. All right, let's go on and, and look. The manifold or many-sided grace of God. And he gives, again, some examples. If anyone speaks, let him speak as of the oracles of God. In other words, speak for God. If anyone ministers, that's the word service again. Let him do it with the ability which God supplies. So don't look at yourself. Don't look at your natural talents and abilities. Look for what God has given you to do. That in all things... God may be glorified through Jesus Christ to whom belong the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Again, a reminder that the gifts God's given to you are not for your glory. They're for His glory. They're to show what He is like. Now turn with me to Matthew chapter 25. I've taught on this for years. I've meditated on it. I've begun to see things in here I've never seen before. Jesus in chapter 25 is telling a series of parables about the kingdom of God. And this is the second one. Verse 14. The kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. So there's the, there's the, the, uh, a man who owns some goods and he has some servants. And he's leaving, so he calls the servants to them and he takes the goods that he, the owner, the master, owns and he gives them to his servants. Verse 15. To one he gave five talents. Now, a talent is an amount of money. To another he gave two and to another one. Look at this. To each according to his own ability. Now, the first thing we see there is that the master knew his servants. He knew their abilities. It doesn't indicate here at all that the one he gave five to was more, was, he loved any more than the one he gave one. What he recognized is that they had different abilities. And as a result, he gave them talents or gifts 
in accordance with the abilities that, had already, that there was already theirs. But the first thing I want you to see is the master knew his servants. He knew what they could do. Now notice what he doesn't do. He doesn't ask them what they think they can handle. Because I found we can almost always handle more than we think we can. Oh, I don't, you know, I can't do that. How do you know? If God's given it to you to do, then God, then you can do it. Paul said, let us in on a secret in Philippians chapter 4 that blows away every excuse. He says, for I can do most of what's put in front of me if I got enough time and enough people to help me. I can do a lot of things for Christ if I feel good, you know, and the weather's okay, and it's the right time of year, and I don't have enough other things planned. That's not what it says, is it? Paul says, I can do all things. I can do all things. I can do all things. Because I'm Paul. I'm educated. I'm experienced. I'm an apostle. No, he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Which tells me if he needed Christ to strengthen him, there were times he was weak. He gave the talents to each in accordance with their ability, and then he left. Let's go on. Verse 16. Then he who had received the five talents went and traded with them and made another five talents. Likewise, he who received two gained two more also. But he who received the one went and dug in the ground and hid his Lord's money. And after a long time, the Lord... The, word long, the, 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 the idea of long time implies that sometimes what we react to is we don't see any consequence to what we do right away. So we think, well, there's not, it doesn't matter what I do. Not realizing that there will come a day when he returns. And that's why Peter says that as the day grows short, be sober, be alert. Verse 19, after a long time, the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. So he who had received the five talents came and brought five other talents, saying, Lord, you delivered to me five talents, and look, I gained five more talents besides them. And his Lord said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Now notice that what this servant did with what was entrusted to him determined what he was going to be entrusted with down the road. Most of the time, most of us live very short-sighted. We live our life for this life at the very best not realizing that what we do here is determining things for eternity. I'm not talking about whether you're going to heaven or not. I'm assuming you are. If you're in Christ, you're going to heaven. So I'm talking to people that are, I assume are in Christ and going to heaven. If you're not, we'll take care of that before we're done. 
And he's saying to them, understand that in heaven we don't just sit on clouds with harps, you know, or guitars, or whatever you like to play. We work. Oh, the word again. We have assignments. Paul says, I think it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he says, if you can't settle your own disputes among yourselves and you have to take your disputes as a Christian to court, you failed. He says, don't you understand that in the next age you're going to sit in judgment over angels and you can't handle judging among yourselves? So we have assignments. And what we do what we've been entrusted here is training and preparation and also his evaluation for what you're going to do forever. So the little bit of difficulty we're going through here, the little bit of hard times you may go through while what God's assigned to you, you know, God's assigned us to New England. We've got friends that have been assigned to Hawaii and Florida. I mean, I've been in Florida and said, God, I'm open. I'm really open. My heart is open to hear. And I know I could convince my wife to be in agreement with him. I know I'm supposed to be here. And you know what? I don't regret that. I don't say, oh, God, I wish we were. No, 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 not at all. It is a joy. When you're where God puts you and you're doing what God's put you to do, there is fullness of joy. But he said, because you've been, and notice, he he just said, because you've been faithful with what I gave you, I'm going to make you in charge of much more. Sometimes we want our own, and God will test you by putting into your hands something to make you faithful with somebody else's. Because if you'll be faithful with somebody else's, see, there's nothing that's ours, really. Sometimes people come out of Bible school or they feel a call from God and they want to go start their own ministry. And that's wonderful. Sometimes that's how God does it. But most of the time, God will assign you under somebody else to establish your faithfulness with what God's entrusted to somebody else. Because when you get into your, whatever your position is, if, it's your, if you're in charge of it, it's still not yours. This is not my church. This is His church. I'm simply assigned to oversee it on His behalf. Well, let's look at the next servant. Same idea. Verse 22. And he who had received the two talents came and said, Lord, you delivered two talents to me. Look, I've gained two more talents besides these. His Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Then he who had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you've not sown, gathering where you've not scattered seed. And I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. And look, what you have is yours. And his Lord, now you think in some regard, well, he's faithful. What he was given, he took care of, it's in good shape, and he's given him back. But the master was looking for more because it was not given to him just for safekeeping. It was entrusted to him to produce something out of with. Verse 26, but his Lord answered and said to him, you wicked and lazy servant, you knew that I reap where I've not sown and gather where I've not scattered seed. 
So what you ought to have done is deposited my money with the bankers, and at my coming, I would have received back my own with interest. Therefore, take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. For everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from him who does not have, even what he does have will be taken away. Now, let's look at this a little bit in the time that we have. Because obviously, it's talking about Jesus is teaching them that God has given to them, entrusted something to us. Whatever the gift is. The first two took it, and it's interesting, I never saw this before. They traded them, got involved in commerce. What I noticed is when Jesus was correcting the third servant who buried it in the ground, he said, the very least you could have done is stick it in the bank and you would have earned interest on it. You'd have done something with it. And here's what I saw. The first two servants, in order to, to, in order to involve exchanging, there's a risk involved. You have to be willing to take what you have and is safe in your hands and let it go hoping you're going to get the better of the bargain. You're going to get a profit out of it. There's risk involved in trading. You better understand that if you're in the stock market. There's risk involved. But the old phrase is, the greater the, the, greater the reward, the greater the risk. You cannot, the greater the risk you have, the greater potential for reward. And there's a risk involved when you take your gift and begin to operate it. The risk is involved. Whether people may not understand it, they may reject you, but if they reject you, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting his gift. Because you represent him. But the point is there's risk involved. There's the potential for fear. And these first two servants, recognizing that this was entrusted to them, had their eyes on the master and on the gift and on the benefit of best blessing him. So they, they took the gift and they exchanged it and got back more. The third servant was afraid. And notice who he's afraid of. His excuse was to the master, I was afraid of you. And he goes on and tells the master what he thinks of him. He says, because you reap or you do not sow. In other words, you're unjust. You're expecting things where you haven't invested. So I'm afraid of you. And because I was afraid of you, the safest thing to do was to take what you put in my hands and bury it in the ground because that way I know I'd at least be able to give it back to you. And because he was afraid, he held on to what he had because it's the safest thing to do. At least it feels like it's the safest thing to do. And the master was displeased with him and said, all right, if you were afraid of me, then at least what you should have done is take it and stick it in the bank where there's very little, if any, risk. You should have done something with it by which I could have gotten something back. And so when Peter says that we are, manif- we are stewards, 
of the many-sided grace of God. Jesus is teaching here what stewardship means. It means it's a recognition, it's not mine. I don't own it. It's a recognition. What I do with that gift is a reflection of what I think of the one who gave me that gift. In the case of the third servant, it tells us that he held on to it because what he thought of the, of, the, of the master was that he was unfair and unjust and he was afraid of him. It's interesting. That was how the servant said he saw the master. The master had a different opinion. The master said he was lazy. called him lazy because he said even if you were afraid of me if you weren't lazy you would have taken it and you would have put it in the bank so we see here that in order for this gift to benefit the master there's a risk involved we have to let go of it use it spend it Exercise it in order to exchange and get something back. And I've learned this about God. If you take the gift he's given you and you exercise it for the benefit of others, you will always get back more than you gave. So sometimes we look at ourselves and say, I don't have the energy I'm too old, I'm too tired, I'm too this, I'm, you know, I don't have enough education. All these excuses. Yeah. All these excuses as if God didn't know that when he gave you the gift. <laughs> They're 60 years old. I didn't realize that. Oh, I better take it back and give it to somebody who's 40 because they won't be able to do that. Remember, the master knew what their abilities were. And he gave them gifts according to the ability that he already knew that they had. And notice the reward. It's what I live for. I've, I've let go of everything else. And sometimes I have to, to pick, I'll pick things up back up again, you know, ambitions and things, and I'm going to lay them down again. No. I, I, I want to hear those words. I want to hear those, I want to hear those words. I appreciate when people come to me and say, you know, you're doing a good job. I appreciate that. I mean, it means a lot. But, but it's, when, it's only when I, I really, I have to hear from him. Amen. Well done good and faithful servant. Well done. Good and faithful. Faithful just means you did what you were supposed to do with what you were given. That's all. See, the, notice, they didn't return the same amounts. One returned five extra and the other returned two extra. So he didn't say, well, I'm going to reward the one that gave five more because he brought more to me. No, he rewarded them for their faith. God's responsible for the results. We're responsible for how faithful we are to do what He's called us to do. 
but it's serious to him because there will come a time when we will give an accounting. And just as it says, he went away and was gone for a long time. And, the, and it's interesting because the, the I never thought of this before. These parables fit together. Next week we'll get, we'll get into the next one. But the, the parable before this is about the, it's about the virgins waiting. And, the, and, and there was half of them waited they had, and let their lamps go out. They let the oil go out and, and because it was a long time. So they were misled by how long that wait was. And they began to, because the wait was long, they began to forget that he was coming back, the master, the bridegroom. Instead, what they began to look at it, how things are going on now. We need to be aware of what's going on around us. We need to be aware of the time we live in. But we need to have our eyes. We need to have our eyes on eternity. We need to have our eyes. John Bevere wrote a book called Driven by, Driven by Eternity. We need to have our eyes because what you're doing here is affecting there and there's forever. This is momentary. That's why Paul wrote in, in 2 Corinthians chapter uh, 18, for this moment, chapter 4, verse 17 and 18, for this momentary light affliction, you ought to read what that was, is earning for me an eternal weight of glory because I was faithful to do what I was supposed to do. Turn with me to John chapter 15 and 17. We'll end with this verse. And we may pick up next time and, and, and call some of this back, but I want to show you something I never saw before until I was reading through this yesterday. Powerful chapter. This is an opportunity to listen into Jesus' own prayer life with the Father. I want to just go to verse 4. Jesus, the first part of this, of this chapter, of this prayer, Jesus is personal between Jesus and the Father. And he's saying to the Father about himself. Basically, I've, you know, I, I left my glory in heaven when I came down here, and I'm coming back. I want my glory back. Then the next segment of this chapter, of this prayer, is praying for his disciples that he, he had been called. And then the last section, begin around 21, he says, and for those, I'm praying now for those who believed based on the disciples' words. That's you and me. So the first part of the prayer, he's praying for himself. The second part for his disciples. And the third part is for you and me. But we're going to listen in to the end of his prayer for himself. In verse 4. I have, talking about what he's done now. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work, the assignment which you gave to me to do. Later on when he's talking about the men, verse 6, and I have manifested your name to them, to the men, who you have given me out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. But verse 4, notice it just jumped out at me the other day, yesterday. I have finished. This is the second person of the Godhead. This is the the son of the living God. And his attitude was, I finished the assignment that you gave me 
to do. He recognized that he was a servant of his father and that he had been given an assignment which was to come and die. That's why in the garden, when he's wrestling with his own will, in Matthew's account, three times he had to go back to settle it again. And he's wrestling. I don't believe it was a short prayer, but the part we have is short. He says, nevertheless, he asks, Father, is it possible for this cup, in other words, what I'm going to have to go through, this responsibility to pass from me? Is it possible for there is another way to do this assignment? And then when he settles, there was no other way. He says, nevertheless, Father, not my will, which means he had his own will. But your will be done. Father, I have finished the work that you gave me to do. Now, Philippians chapter 2 says, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him a name that's above every name, that the mention of his name every knee shall bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue shall declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. His exalted position today is because he completely fulfilled and was faithful with the assignment that he was given. The Apostle Paul says in the letter, second letter to Timothy, at the end of his life in ministry, he says, I know in whom I've entrusted my life. He says, I have finished my race, I have run my course. I know, therefore, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness for those who love the Lord and who are, who are looking forward to His coming. My brother and sister, there's a reward, and it's literally out of this world. It is literally out of this world. And you and I have been entrusted with gifts to minister to the body of Christ for the wholeness and soundness of the body and so that the body of Christ can minister out there to a lost and dying world that God hears this morning. We talked about this several weeks ago. God hears right now the cries of the lost and the hurting. He may, they may not be crying with a voice out loud, but in their hearts. He hears the heart cry of a prostitute waking up this morning, remembering what had happened last night, knowing that she's trapped and caught, or he's trapped and caught, and no way out. And somewhere down inside, there's a cry for help that's not even coming to words. But the God of all heaven loves that person and hears that cry this morning. But his hands and his ears and his eyes and his feet are not in heaven. They're right here. They're right here. They're right here. They're you and they're me. And each one of us has a purpose in this body. And there is no sense of satisfaction. There's no joy. There's no, there's no sense of peace and safety. Like knowing 
you're in the middle of God's will. And you're doing what you were made to do. All of hell can come against you. And it won't matter. Because you're right in the middle, in the palm of his hands. The time is short. And the day is fast approaching when the Lord will return. And there's not much time to get the work done that he's called us to do. But I believe the timing is in God's hands. And if we'll just be sensitive and willing, then God will be able to get us where he needs to get us. For it's not by might, it's not by power, but it's by his spirit, says the Lord.